Engaging Leader, Episode 90. Bridge the Workplace Generation Gap, featuring David Maxfield. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action. Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Can people of different generations work together productively, or do their differences lead only to conflict and waste? According to a new study from the American Society for Training and Development and social scientist for organizational change, David Maxfield, unaddressed tension and resentment among baby boomers, Gen X, and millennials is sapping productivity in corporate America. For example, the study showed that more than one in three people waste five or more hours each week, which is about 12% of their work week, due to chronic, unaddressed conflict between colleagues from different generations. The results of the study were published in an article called The Great Generational Divide, and today we're going to dig into this issue and what we can do about it. Our guest is David Maxfield himself, who not only worked on that study, but is also the author of several best-selling books, including Crucial Accountability, which we'll be discussing today as a resource for addressing this generational resentment. David Maxfield, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you for having me, Jesse. David, can you explain how this survey, the study was done and what the the key results ended up being? Sure. We were interested in the kinds of conflicts that people describe as intergenerational. So uh, Gen Xers having a conflict with older baby boomers or millennials having a conflict with Gen Xers or baby boomers. So we did a pretty comprehensive survey. We included more than 2,000 people in the survey and got some pretty striking results. Probably the most striking result is how much of a time waster or energy sapper this is. We find that uh, fully a quarter of people avoid these conversations altogether and that it saps as much as 12% of productivity from the typical workplace. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that quarter of the people avoid it altogether. And that's actually based on self-reporting. And your book, Crucial Accountability, suggests that the actual number may be even much higher, that people aren't being fully aware of how much they're avoiding, that when you actually watched what people did, it's almost 100% of the time people seem to avoid these difficult conversations. Yes, Jesse, let me give you just a couple examples. We went into a busy mall shortly before the holidays, and we looked for people standing in long lines. And when we saw them, like at gift wrapping stations or fast food joints, we'd walk up to someone near the front of the line and tap them on the shoulder and say, what would you do if someone were to butt in front of you in this line? And as you can imagine, pretty much 100% of them said, well, I'd show them the end of the line. You know, I'd hold them accountable (laughs) We talk a pretty good line when it comes to holding people accountable. So we came back the next day with a hidden camera, and we had people butt in front of lines, like all day. And 25 times we had them butt in front of people, and only once did someone speak up to the person who butted in front. They'd make faces. They looked angry, but they wouldn't speak up. And the one who did speak up asked the woman who'd butt in front of her, who does your hair? (laughs) How's that for getting to the root of the problem? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe the roots were dyed. I don't know. (laughs) 
Now, in that that same study, did you find out whether people could learn to handle that in a in an effective manner? Well, we've been working on that problem for about thirty years. We so, for example, uh, we've been working trying to improve like hand hygiene in healthcare, and the best predictor of good hand hygiene is whether a nurse or another staff member will speak up and hold others accountable, essentially just remind them to wash their hands. And we find that if you just go into a typical hospital, only about 11 to 12 percent of people will speak up to like a physician. But after training, we can have that go up as high as 90 percent. Wow. So this can get better. It's not rocket science here. Yeah, it's basically skills that can be learned. It's not something that's genetically wired into you. Absolutely. Now, in the workplace, what sorts of issues that would come up between the generations? What kinds of problems and uh, resentment w- mm. was, dis- was uncovered by this study? Well, it's interesting. The most common, if you have them describe factually what has them concerned, it, it's almost the same problems no matter the generation, no matter who's talking or who they're talking about. It's people who are not doing their fair share of the work, people who are unwilling to listen and change, right? And people who are described as being unreliable or not meeting deadlines. Those are kind of the big three. And and the interesting thing is, depending on how old the other person is, you'll describe it as, well, it's an older person who's not meeting deadlines, so they've kind of checked out, they've retired on the job. Or it's a young person who's not meeting deadlines, so they've uh, they're just irresponsible and won't listen, right? So it's the same problem, but we have these clever excuses that seem to be age-based. And it's is it all three of the the big generations that are currently making up the workforce: baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials? Yes, we saw all of them sort of avoiding these conversations, avoiding accountability. Now, when we ask them in sort of a self-report way, who do you have the toughest time holding accountable? There's no big surprise that they have the tough, everybody has the toughest time holding their bosses accountable and holding more experienced people accountable. Now, this really (laughs) causes a problem if you're a millennial, right? If you're one of the youngest folks on the job, uh, a lot of people are older than you and more experienced than you. And a lot of the people you work with are above you in the organization. And so it's no surprise that millennials report having the toughest time holding people accountable. Hmm. Now, what about sort of the, the common perceptions that generations tend to have of each other? What, what are the issues that come up there that may or may not be true? Yeah, well, the, the most common stereotype that baby boomers have about millennials and about Gen Xers is that they're not very committed, they're not very reliable, that they are sort of flighty. It's that sort of, a, it's, a, it's a motivation sort of attribution that they're not very motivated or committed. Now, and that's true whether they're talking about millennials or talking about Gen Xers. Now, when Gen Xers and millennials think of baby boomers, they tend to think of us, I'll say me because I'm 59, (laughs) right in the heart of it, as sexist, unwilling to listen, unwilling to change, um, and lots of other sort of negative attributes around stuck in our ways, which is probably true, and don't ask me to change. (laughs) (laughs) But I think a lot of these are kind of clever stories that let 
us all off the hook of holding each other accountable. After all, once I've decided that this millennial is just non-committed, not very motivated, what's the point of me speaking up, right? Mm -hmm. Or once a millennial decides that I'm just old and stuck in my ways, what's the point of speaking up? They're kind of, they let them off the hook of holding these tough conversations. So in the pursuit of accountability, it's both uh, raising these issues, but also a lot of times uncovering the truth behind it. When you find out that the reason this certain action or behavior didn't happen, when you follow through appropriately, you might find out that there's a very good reason for it not happening. And so you, you really were cutting everybody short by, by falling into that misperception. Yeah, so I like to think that the whole notion of accountability is to try to understand what's accounting for this problem. And with many problems, there's more than just one root cause. Like, what does account for this problem? If we're not careful, we'll fall into what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. And that fundamental attribution error is that we attribute bad things to uh, the other person's motives. So we say they're lazy, they're not committed, they're unmotivated, rather than trying to ask what really is causing that problem. So let's say you the, the, you have an issue that you're, there's an employee who wants to hold another employee accountable, so they, the, and they go to follow up with that person, especially let's say it's a millennial following up with a baby boomer. What is the right place to start that conversation? I would want to start with the facts. And there are a couple kinds of facts that you want to focus in on. I'll say what you're trying to do is describe the gap between what you observed and what you've expected, right? So maybe what you expected was to have the baby boomer get you an authorized budget by 10 a.m. this morning, and what you've observed is no email, no budget, no nothing, right? And here it is, the end of the day. So if you stick just to the facts and say, gee, I expected to get your authorization this morning by 10, I haven't received it. And then stop, right? And just listen, and tr- and listen for what what are you going to hear back? Was the expectation somehow didn't get across? So they thought it was due tomorrow, and it's due today, or or are they going to explain why they didn't get it done, or what? And how long should you let that initial uh, sentences that you're saying? happen is it is if if you notice that you spend five minutes spitting that all out is that too long oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) in fact we'll call it we'll call it the hazardous half minute this you've got to accomplish three things in the first 30 seconds first you've got to describe what the facts are of the problems what did i expect what i observe second you've got to try to make sure that the person doesn't feel attacked as you're describing it and third you want to end with a question like, help me understand, or what happened, right? Because you don't want a monologue. You mm-hmm. want a dialogue. Monologues make people feel like they're attacked. And what kind of question are you asking there? What's, what's the intent? Because it seems like you could a- actually ask a question in a way that still manages to put the other person on the defensive. Like, what did you think you were doing there? Yeah. You Which, think you're doing your job? Especially with, I think, with, with my kids. I so often accidentally hear that coming out of my mouth. What were you thinking? <laughs> yes. Perfect. Yes. 
So, so first of all, you want it to be an open-ended question, not just a yes or no question. And you want to, you want to be genuinely curious. So we want to say you, you want to approach these problems with the, with the demeanor of a concerned scientist. You're trying to understand what's accounting for this problem, but you're concerned. You care about the person. So the kind of question is, um, help me understand or what happened or, or could you tell me what's going on? I mean, almost anything would work, except the ones that you gave as an example. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be, play judge and jury, because then the verdict shows on your face, and it comes across as an attack. I almost jumped us in a little early. There's a there's a little bit of planning and thinking that has to happen even before you are prepared for that that crucial first thirty seconds. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about that. The, the thing I'll focus on is the old, we're all familiar with the old fight or flight response, right? When our ancestors are being you know, surprised by a saber-toothed tiger, right? The adrenaline floods your body. Blood rushes to your major muscle groups. You're getting ready to either fight or flee. Now, with, with humans in social interaction, we call it silence and violence, where silence sounds like fleeing. You're trying to hide. You're avoiding a conversation. You're dancing around the topic that concerns you most. And fighting sounds like you, this, this thing has aggravated you for a while. It's festered. It's turned ugly. And now you're making accusations. You're moving to controlling. Okay. So we live in a culture of low accountability where instead of holding people accountable, we tend to go to silence or violence. And you've decided you're going to speak up. Is this person you're speaking up to, are they likely to see that as silence or as violence? Right? And the answer is pretty clear, right? They're likely to see you're speaking up at all as being violence, as being an attack. So you need to find a way right up front to be able to say, this is not an attack. Does that make sense? It does. So, so there's a way you can do that. And the way I remember it is I think of an adage that you hear in the military. In the military, you'll hear people say, always salute the flag before you disagree with your commanding officer. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So what does it mean to salute the flag before you disagree? And I'll argue it means two different things. First, what it means is it shows respect. It shows respect for the other person's role, their position, who they are as a person. You need to show respect. We call that mutual respect. The second thing that saluting the flag does is it reminds the other person that you and they are on the same team serving under the same flag. Mm. That, in, that for, for most of, of what you're going to talk about, you and they share the same purpose. We call that mutual purpose. So if you can salute the flag, sort of speak from your heart saying, you know, I want what you want here and I respect you, that's a way of letting the person know that this is not an attack. It may be an accountability conversation, but it's not an attack. Okay, so you start with getting your mind in the right framework and salute the flag, thinking about how you're going to express mutual respect and mutual purpose. And then when you start the conversation, you want to start with the facts and try to plan that that to happen within 30 seconds before you then are listening to the other person. Yes, that's right. So let me give an example. Imagine you've got an important customer, and this customer is sort of 
frustrated with you and your team because a lot of mistakes have happened. Now, they may not want to admit this, but a lot of the mistakes are their fault, and you need to hold them accountable. So the first thing I ask myself is, you know, what's my positive motivation for holding this person accountable? What's in it for them? How does it help them that I'm holding them accountable so that I can come across with a mutual purpose so it doesn't sound like an attack? And then what are the facts? So I might start with my intent. I might say something like, um, I want to make sure that we eliminate the kinds of problems and missed deadlines that have plagued this project over the last six months. And as a part of that, I'd like to work through um, some of the, the change orders that you've submitted and, and how those impact the execution at our end. Is it okay if we do that? Mm-hmm. And hopefully I can say that in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> so you, when you, after you start with the facts and you listen to what they have to say, I'm, I'm thinking of, you mentioned that there's this risk of people either interpreting silence or violence. How do you make sure that this is, remains a safe conversation for the other person? Yeah, part of it is I try to watch their reactions. This is why these conversations are hard to hold um, over email and over the phone, is you're trying to read the other person's reaction. If they're looking defensive or they're starting to look angry, or they're starting to look attacked, and they're trying to like shrivel away and <laughs> disappear, you know that they're feeling unsafe. Okay. Now, when, when people are feeling unsafe, it's because they're misreading your motives. They're thinking that you're trying to attack them. And in fact, you're not. You're trying to get to the root of a problem. You're not trying to blame them for a problem. And so when I notice that, I stop and I explain my intentions in a more specific way. Like if they think that I'm trying to blame them for the problem, I'll use what we call a contrast statement, which sounds like this. You know, I'm really not trying to blame you for this problem. In fact, I'm really not interested in, in who or what's to blame. I just want to focus on what the root cause is so we can prevent it from happening again. Mm-hmm. Right? So I say, I'm not doing this. I'm doing this. Right, that's a contrast statement saying I'm not trying to blame you. I'm trying to find the root cause. Right, that makes sense. Now, how do you describe the cause of the problem? Okay, we'll group causes into two big categories. So, if somebody hasn't done what you expected them to do, we'll say it's either a difference in motivation, like they don't want to do it, they're not interested in doing it, they don't see it as a high priority, or it's a lack of ability. They're struggling with it. They don't have the knowledge or the training. It's difficult or inconvenient. Now, we're not saying it's impossible, but it's difficult. So the two broad classes are motivation and ability. So the person's saying, can I do it and will it be worth it? And those problems, it's important to understand whether you're facing a motivation problem, an ability problem, or a combination of the two because the solutions look different. Now, one question before we get into the solutions. Let's say that when, when you ask them what happened, it comes down to what they would describe as, I believe this is important, it's just I have uh, conflicting priorities and I had to put these other priorities first. How, do you put that on the motivation side or the ability side? We put it on the motivation side, but I think what you're clarifying is that this is a bit of a messy distinction 
And if we, if we get into too much of an argument over is it this or is it that, then we're probably in the weeds. <laughs> we would put that on the motivation side because whatever other priorities they have, they saw as more important than yours. So the name of the game in motivating somebody is trying to explain your priorities in a way that's accurate and convincing and trying to understand their priorities, including their other priorities, in a way that is accurate so that the two of you can balance the priorities in an appropriate way. So this isn't about how do you win an argument. It's about how do you find the right set of priorities for the two of you. Gotcha. Okay. Now you have in the book a a six-part model for helping identify the, the, the causes and solutions to the motivation issue and the ability issue. And we probably don't have time to get into all those right now, but do you have any tips for how you handle that part of the conversation where you're sorting out the possible solutions? Yes. The, the tip would be really that if, if you're dealing with a problem that's persistent and that's resistant to change, it's probably because it has more than one root cause. So while I've said that the main root causes are motivation and ability, within motivation, there are different kinds of motivation. Like it might be, for example, that they don't enjoy the task. That would be one kind of motivation. That'd be personal motivation. I don't like it. I don't find it meaningful. It's not part of who I think I am or what I think my job should be. That's personal motivation. Maybe at the same time, your boss has told you not to do it. Now, that's a different motivation problem. That's a social motivation problem. You might want to do it, but your boss said not to. Well, in this case, not only do you not want to do it, but your boss told you not to. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, so when we, when we look at the six sources of influence, we want to say, you know, look in all six categories of causes, three of which are motivation, personal, social, and structural, and three are ability personal, social, and structural. Because you might have problems in two or three or all six and, and require solutions in all you know, each of those. Give us an example of a, of, a, of a source of influence that's structural. Sure. I'll, use, I'll do structural motivation first. So structural motivation involves what I think of as the P's. So if you hear someone saying, well, this won't affect my performance review or this won't affect my pay or my promotions – or my perks, or any punishments, those are all structural incentive system stuff that the organization has set up. If the P's are lined up against what you want the person to do, then the person probably won't do it. Now, an example of structural ability, structural ability covers everything we've learned from like lean and the Toyota method and Six Sigma. So it's the structure of the environment. One of my examples that I like is the Centers for Disease Control has been studying childhood obesity, as you can imagine. One of the structural elements in our environment that leads to childhood obesity is lack of sidewalks. If you don't have a sidewalk in your community, the odds that your child walks a mile or more a day drops precipitously. And the fix is to put in sidewalks. Right? <laughs> it's not to go motivate your kid or teach him how to walk or give him a course on good walking behavior. It's to change the environment, right? So that's, that would be structural ability. All right. And by the way, we will dig more into those six sources of influence in episode 91 when we talk about the book Influencer. But 
So let's say in this in this crucial accountability conversation, you you have this conversation with the other person, and it's I, I guess you'd in, in, envision it rather as a brain a, a mutual brainstorming session. It's not so much a directed uh, conversation where you're telling them what you think the answer is. Is that correct? Yes. Um, if it's motivation. We have a set of skills that we call communicating consequences, which is talking about the results or the outcomes that, that are put at risk by their current behavior or that could be benefited by changing their behavior. On the ability side, we're trying to brainstorm with them what are the obstacles they're facing and what are the solutions that they think would be most appropriate there. All right. And then how do you create a commitment and then follow up at the end. Yeah, I, that's a very important element. If all you had was a dialogue <laughs> that didn't lead to any action, it, we'd all be pretty frustrated. So, so there needs to be closure on who will do what by when, right? So not what we will do, but here's, here's my understanding of what you've said you're willing to do. Here's what, here's what I will do, and, and let's have a timeline so that we can follow up. And then truly follow up, because otherwise, action really won't happen. David, the part of the conversation where you're getting into the motivation, how do you walk them through the consequences? Yeah. First, let me set up sort of the philosophy we'd have of motivation. We want to say that the opposite of motivated is not lazy. Now, it's not that there aren't lazy people. Okay? I, I feel like I'm even related to some lazy people, right? But, <laughs> but it, there's no profit in thinking of a person as lazy. It works better if you think of everyone as always being motivated, but not always being motivated to do what you want them to do, right? So I might be really motivated to go home and take a nap, <laughs> and I might be really creative. I might work really hard to make that happen. That's a motivation problem. So to motivate people, we need to explain the impacts of their behavior, and the impacts that we're trying to have. So here, we'll, we'll describe consequences. People are motivated by consequences, by results. And we'll divide consequences into two broad categories, natural consequences and imposed consequences. Here's an example of a natural consequence with my nephew, PJ. PJ, if you ride your bike on the wrong side of the road, drivers may have trouble seeing you and you could get hurt. Now, here's an imposed consequence. PJ, if I catch you riding your bike on the wrong side of the road, I'm going to lock you in your room till you're 23. <laughs> right? Now, we want people to start with natural consequences and have at least three of them kind of in their back pocket that they might use. So a natural consequence, like PJ, if, if you ride your bike on the wrong side of the road, drivers might have trouble seeing you. There are reasons to start with natural consequences. For example, it, it doesn't make you the focus of their resentment. They don't blame it on you. And second, it give, gives them the information they need so they can make an informed choice on their own. And third, it becomes their own choice, which means they hold themselves accountable so you don't have to catch them doing something wrong. We'll say with imposed consequences, the best you can hope for is obedience or compliance, whereas with natural consequences, you can get genuine understanding and commitment. And that's what we're after. And these consequences could be positive or negative, I assume. Absolutely. So you could talk about the positive consequences that could be achieved, 
or you could talk about the negative consequences that could be avoided. Now, behavioral economists have been studying which of these is more powerful. <laughs> and in the moment, it's the negative consequences that stimulate us to act in a more immediate kind of way. But I like to think that long term, it's our aspirations that guide a lot of our behavior. So I think in the, in the short term, the negative is what we're trying to avoid. And in the long term, we're trying to orient ourselves toward the positive. Now, does it make a difference whether you, especially if you're talking to someone in a different generation, again, if, if we put ourselves in the shoes of a millennial trying to uh, have an accountability conversation with a baby boomer, let's say, does it make a difference whether you plan to just uh, explain these consequences or is, there, is it better to uh, help the other person come to those conclusions? Well, it's always better if you can have the other person discover it for themselves. Um, the only challenge with that is, um, let's say it's my nephew PJ and he's riding his bike in front of a truck. I don't <laughs> want to discover that for himself. It, one trial extinction, right? Um, so... Obviously, there are times when we'll use verbal persuasion. We'll use our power of <laughs> persuasion. But understand that that's the weakest, the least effective way to change someone's motivation, right? Because they may not trust that you really have good, accurate information. Like they may not think you're up on the latest technology. They may also question whether you have their best interests at heart. And if they question either your motivation or your ability, that undermines you. So the way to really have someone truly accept in, in their hearts and their minds a piece of information is for them to experience it for themselves. But you don't always have the opportunity to, to do that. And so speaking, you know, using lectures, sermons, data dumps, and rants, right, that's, that's our shortcut often. Now, let's say you are a leader in an organization and you recognize that one of the root uh, obstacles that we face around here is this silence, that we have uh, issues that are, are holding us back because we just aren't having these kinds of accountability conversations. Where do you start there by making a, an overall culture change to uh, get more people talking in, in this healthy way? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question, and that is where we come in and work with organizations day in and day out. That's the most typical kind of request that we have. It might be a hospital where people aren't speaking up and so putting patients' safety at risk, or it might be a large you know, industrial organization where people knew that a big project that had hundreds of millions of dollars behind it, they knew it was going to fail, but nobody felt they could speak up and share truth to power. And we always start with the top of the organization. So we work with a CEO and his or her direct reports to make sure that, that they understand what it's going to take to, in terms of both the skills and training, but more importantly, to build that motivation throughout the organization to understand that it's okay, that it's acceptable, because we're fighting organizational norms here. Right? Then we involve not just the formal leaders, but we also involve the informal leaders. So we'll identify opinion leaders throughout the entire organization and involve them very early in the process to understand what are all the obstacles that are making speaking up or speaking truth to power 
difficult or challenging or risky and address them one at a time so that it's it's um, it can take several months I don't want to say that it takes much longer than that because it really can be done uh, but it takes a concerted effort from leadership and from opinion leaders across the organization. Well, we've been talking with David Maxfield about the study, The Great Generational Divide, and about his New York Times bestselling book, Crucial Accountability. David, where can people find out more about this book and your work and and, uh, just you in general? Absolutely. Well, they can find Crucial Accountability in pretty much any bookstore, either online or in their neighborhood bookstore. They can also check us out. Our firm is called Vital Smarts, and we're at vitalsmarts.com, or they can go to crucialaccountability.com and find us there. And are you active on any social media? We are. You could find uh, Vital Smarts on Facebook and also on Twitter. Excellent. Well, David Maxfield, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you so much, Jesse. All right, Engagers, just to wrap up this episode with a quick recap. Yes, there is tension between the workplace generations. The real problem, though, is that it's unresolved and chronic. That's what the study found, that there is wasted effort. There's productivity. Uh, One in three people are wasting more than five hours a week because of chronic, unresolved tension and resentment. People are avoiding conflict with colleagues of a different age. They're not speaking up. They are not candidly and respectfully talking about the issues that are getting in the way of the important things that get done at work, uh, of making a difference, of being productive. And in that silence, they are tending to fall back on false perceptions about the other generations. Oh, that generation is lazy. That generation is reluctant to change. But by helping people learn a few skills to talk about these issues, to have accountability discussions, we can help our organizations, our teams, resolve this conflict and improve productivity. Now, we talked about four skills out of the book Crucial Accountability today. Start with the facts, make it safe, make it motivating, and number four, agree on a plan and follow up. Of course, there's a lot more meat in the book The book talks through several skills to learn. It gives a lot more guidance and science behind the four skills that we talked about today. And it's got lots of great stories that makes it a a nice book to read, an enjoyable book to read. And one thing it does that I, I wish more books did, it has a nice chapter summary at the end of each chapter. So as you're done learning all these facts and reading the stories, it helps organize everything to make it easy to remember and to put into practice. So again, the book is Crucial Accountability, Tools for Resolving Violated Expectations, Broken Commitments, and Bad Behavior. And we'll provide the information and links that David Maxfield mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. We just had a a listener do that recently, sent us a voicemail asking for an archive of our podcast episodes so he could find specific episodes without having to scroll back, click through page by page. And, of course, you can do that on iTunes, I should mention. But uh, we also just added that feature to our website 
there is now an archives. If you go to engagingleader.com, you can mouse over any of our three podcast series, Engaging Leader, Workforce Health Engagement, and Game Changer, and you'll see an archive that will, if you click on it, then you can uh, see all the episodes on one page. So I appreciate that feedback, and I welcome your feedback as well. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 